As I was making my way through Revelation chapter six this week, I kept thinking of a secular book that I read just out of college. Many of you may have read it as well. It's entitled, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey, not a Christian, stumbles or unfolds some habits that he believes characterize those who are highly effective. Among them are be proactive, think win-win, put first things first, seek first to understand, then be understood. And then this one, begin with the end in mind. By Covey's definition, beginning with the end in mind means understanding where you're headed, understanding the end result, knowing where you're going. It means to begin each day, each task, each project with a clear vision of your direction or your destination. As helpful that, as that is in a secular book, you need to know that's not a new idea. For as good as the book is, Covey didn't invent that concept. From a Christian perspective, that's exactly why the book of Revelation is in the Bible. The book's aim is not just to begin with the end in mind, but this is what we're gonna think about today, it is to live with the end in mind. The aim of the book of Revelation is to help you understand the arc of human history. John wants us to see and know where life is headed and it invites us to live with the end in mind in order, and here's the goal, not just to satisfy our curiosity about what's gonna happen in the future, but instead to live with the end in mind so that it will fuel perseverance. In other words, the last book of the Bible is here to give you, Christian, hope that you can make it. When the world falls apart, when it seems as though the devil's having a heyday, when injustice comes upon you and you think, who's ever gonna make this right? The book of Revelation steps in and says, live with the end in mind. If you read Revelation correctly, you will feel emboldened you feel strengthened. By the end of the sermon, you should feel like, all right, let's go. Let's do it, another week, let's go, let's live for Jesus. The text shows us three realities that I wanna unpack today. Three realities that you need to remember in order to live with the end in mind. So what do you need to know in order to live with the end in mind? Three things, number one, God is going to judge the world. Two, Christians are going to suffer. And three, the world is going to fall apart. <laughs> Sounds pretty encouraging, doesn't it? <laughs> but it is. And I'm gonna show you why today, why this dark material is actually the basis of some unbelievable hope. So today we're gonna look at divine judgment. God's gonna judge the world. Two, suffering saints, Christians are gonna suffer and three, human frailty, the world is going to fall apart. Let's look at each of these. First, divine judgment. In verses one through eight, we find what is often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These seven seals are opened. Remember the seals and the scroll are connected and the first four seals are warriors who bring about divine judgment. If you were here last week, 
We looked at Revelation 5, and hopefully you remember that the plan of God involves both deliverance and judgment. They go together, and the saving of God's people and the redemption of the created order, both of those are God's goals, they come through conquest. So conquering is a theme. That should be somewhat familiar if you were with us in Revelation 2 and 3, because the letters to the churches continually said to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. So conquering, making it to the finish line, that, that's, that's the orientation of this book, and it's important. Again, this book's gonna help you. It helps you make it to the end. It helps you know what it means to be a conqueror. It helps you know how to persevere. How do you make it when the world falls apart? How do you, fall, how do you make it when it seems as though Christians are suffering? What do you do when it seems as though divine judgment is coming? Well, you read Revelation. And when you get done, your perspective should be, let's go. Let's go. There are four seals that are horsemen. Take note, they're horsemen. We're not talking about people riding on cows or oxen or a donkey. We don't see a lamb or lambs. Why horses? Because horses in the Old Testament and warfare were directly linked together. And in this instance, these horsemen are a part of divine judgment. Now, some theologians believe that Revelation 6 marks the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Others take it to mean a more generalized description of the world that we are presently in, and others take it to be a description that's true now but intensifies as the return of Christ draws near. Remember, I'm preaching a sermon, not teaching a class. If I taught a class, I'd unpack all of those views what I want to do today is put all of those together and say regardless of where you think this lands, in the scheme of eschatology, the message of living with the end in mind is clear. Remember the slain lamb in Revelation 5? He took the scroll, and after he took the scroll, there is spontaneous worship that ripples out like a boulder dropped in water from that throne room. The lamb takes the scroll and he begins to open the seals. Don't forget that the lamb is not only opening the scrolls, but the lamb alone is worthy to open the scroll and its seals. So the lamb isn't just worthy to usher in the plan of God, he's also worthy to usher in the plan of God that involves judgment via the slain lamb. It's important for you to know, Christian and non-Christian, that Jesus is not only the savior of the world, but he's also the king. He died, he rose again from the dead, and he's coming back. Reminds me of Peter's sermon where he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God made both Lord and Christ. In other words, yeah, the guy you just crucified, he's the son of God, and he's coming again. If he's alive, and you crucified him? That's a scary message. Jesus inaugurated redemption with his death and resurrection, but that redemption is not yet complete. He paid for sin, yes, but his work isn't finished. Listen, until sin is defeated 
and it's banished from the face of the earth. So according to verse one, the lamb opens the first seal and John records that he hears one of the four living creatures around the throne say with a voice like thunder, so it's loud, and that creature says, come. It's a command. And I looked, verse two, behold, a white horse. So the first horse is white, and on the horse is a rider with a bow and a crown that was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So I think there's a connection between this chapter and Matthew chapter 24. Who is this rider? Well, it bears a similarity to Revelation 19 when another white horse comes, but in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse is named. He's named Faithful and True. The rider on this horse isn't named, and I think there's a reason. Because in Revelation 19, it's Jesus who's riding on the white horse, but in Revelation 6, the rider of the white horse are those imposters who are trying to look like Jesus. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. This is those who come and try to convince people that they are the Christ. In fact, take your Bible and go over to Matthew 24 and verse four. Matthew 24 and verse four, and we'll see this. Jesus, in fact, I think there's a a flow from Matthew 24 with all of these seals. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but this one is worth noting. Jesus said to them, this is Matthew 24, verse four, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. That's what I think is happening here. Now notice that he has a crown and he has a bow, so he's a warrior, and he has a crown, so he has some kind of authority. This is a false messiah. James Hamilton in his commentary on this text helps us understand how to think about this. Listen carefully. Those who do not know the divine messiah will be easily led astray by false human messiahs. Some lyrical orator with passion and poise and style will come along and all the sheep believe his promise to bring in the millennium. This is not new to the present political situation. These messiahic messiahic or messianic, excuse me, pretenders have been followed around the world through the ages. God reveals this through Christ opening the seal and having John record the vision so that God's people will not be duped by the fakes. Jesus is coming, he is our Messiah, he alone will bring in the kingdom and his realm is our home. Followers of the Messiah, Jesus, do not worship the gods of this culture and do not follow the Messiahs of this culture. So living with the end in mind means understanding this warning. So back in Matthew 24, when you hear the words of the pretender who says, I am the Christ, Some of us mistakenly think that that means that somebody would come on the scene of human history and say, I'm the one who died for your sins. I'm the one who hung on the cross. I'm the one that can make you right with God. That probably isn't what Matthew 24 has in mind. When it says I am the Christ, 
It's the word Messiah. It means savior. It means the one who can meet the needs of your life. If that's true, that's a different kind of caution. And what is that caution? Here it is. The caution is to be careful that our passion for Jesus, the true savior, is greater than our passion for any person who promises to save us from whatever we're concerned about. Let me say that again. That our affection for Jesus, our true savior, is greater than our passion for any person who promises to save us from whatever it is that we think is threatening. The deception of the enemy is not to convince you that someone else died on the cross. The deception of the enemy is to convince you that what you really need is something that Jesus can't provide. So just, I want you to see the world this way. Be very careful when a product launch starts to feel like a worship service. Be very careful when a shareholder meeting feels like our life's gonna be perfect now. As we move into political campaign season, look at the rallies and ask yourself, is this worship? And for us to be careful, because it's dangerous when religion becomes political, it's also dangerous when politics become religious. Unless you think that that's just new in 2022, that's not new, it's always been the case. And there's a reason why this one who's a writer has a crown and why he has power. The caution is to be sure that our passion for Jesus is greater than anything that we think can save us from our earthly concerns. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't have earthly concerns. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't be engaged in trying to make the world right, but it means that you need to have a clear understanding of who your king is or you'll never be able to operate in the public square or in the boardroom or in your classroom or in your neighborhood really well if you think my role is to be Jesus to these people or this person can actually rescue me. The only Christians who are really effective are those who have a clear-eyed understanding. My king is in heaven, my citizenship is there, and one day he's going to come. And therefore, I can serve generously and I can get involved, but at the same time realizing that my heart is set on the king of kings. The second horse arrives in the same way. In verse three, It says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This is the sign of judgment via war. Similar to what we find in Matthew 24 and verse six, where there are wars and rumors of wars. Revelation highlights that there's a raging war that's all around us and a war that's both physical and spiritual. Eugene Peterson says this, the basic nature of human history is warfare. We live 
in conflict. History is a long sequence of battles, the forces of good and evil pitched in conflict. Sensitive persons know this, artists know this, students of history lay bare this documenting, lay bare rather the documenting sources. People of prayer are in the middle of it even when the guns are silent. The battle rages within the soul. It's fought out in family circles. It's contested between nations. War, he writes, is the human condition to be human is to be at war. The third horse is black with a pair of scales, according to verse five. This judgment here represents famine. We see this in light of the proclamation in verse six where prices are now drastically inflated. He says a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarters of barley for a denarius. Suddenly here we have massive inflation food costs going through the roof. And at the same time, oil and wine are untouched. Commentators suggest that's in reference to those who can afford wine and oil, as though the poor are dramatically impacted and those who are wealthy aren't. So what do we see happening? People are following leaders with religious fervor. Wars are breaking out. The economy is devastated. It's happened over and over and over and over throughout human history. And according to this, it's going to keep happening and even happen in greater levels of intensity. Fourth horse. The fourth horse in verse seven is a pale horse. The idea is that it's yellowish green. You know when a friend of yours has the flu or and, 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 and their face was pink and they, like they literally look green. Don't they, you've seen that before? Like, wow, are you green? Like it's crazy how green they look. That's what this is. This, this horse is a pale yellow green and its rider is named, it's death. So trailing behind this horse additionally is Hades, a reference to the grave or the realm of the dead. And so we see that the world population is devastated by death through war and famine and pandemics, and wild beasts. I mean, just think of that. So the the horsemen, war, and famine, and pandemics. Really interesting to me how differently I read Revelation now. (laughs) I, I read this description in 2022 very differently than how I would have read it in 2012, or 1992, or 1982. And yet, shame on me, If I know my history a little better, I would know that this is not an uncommon occurrence. These are all divine judgments that are regular reminders that we live in a broken world. Romans 1 tells us that the judgment of God has already begun at some level. So listen to me, we ought not be surprised when the effects of sin begin to show up in our lifetime. Church, if Jesus really is our king, and if, 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 if our citizenship really is in heaven, then we should live soberly while not making everything about our lives revolving with how things are going right now. Some of us, we just need to stop being so surprised that the world is broken. Some of us are wasting a lot of energy because we can't believe how hard life is. And some of us, just quite frankly, 
We just need to stop making this earth our eternal home. Matthew 24 tells us that these are the beginnings of the birth pains. They are the traumatic events that will lead to a new kingdom. And regardless of your view on the rapture or the great tribulation or the millennial kingdom, we should expect that our earthly experience is going to be a regular roller coaster dealing with the tragic effects of sin. And we might need to get our heads around the fact that the Bible tells us that it's gonna get worse. We gotta live with the end in mind. But that doesn't mean running for the hills. Instead, it means running to Jesus. Being reminded that he's our king, he's our deliverer, that he's the one who will save us from ultimate judgment. Living with the end in mind means understanding that we presently live in a world that is under the judgment of God and that helps us to know how we're gonna make it. That when hard things happen to us, Christian, you can be reminded, oh, thanks for the reminder, Jesus, that you're my king and my citizenship is in heaven. Thanks for uncurling my fingers from my affections of this earth by the hardship that's meant to, like smelling salts, wake me up. That I'm supposed to be living differently than everybody else on the planet because of divine judgment. Secondly, suffering saints. The second reality that we see is the suffering of God's people. Verse nine, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they bore. Here are saints, somehow underneath an altar, who are lamenting the injustice that's been inflicted upon them. And they long for God to make it right. And again, there are important lessons here, regardless of what you, where you place this particular moment on the timeline of your eschatology. In, in verse nine, when this seal is opened, there's no horse this time. Instead, we hear believers who have been killed, notice why, for the word and the testimony or the witness that they had borne. Now this should sound familiar, this word and testimony or word and witness because John started Revelation chapter one with this kind of language. He says this, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account, here it comes, of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So same theme. Or maybe you remember the instruction to the church at Smyrna where they were told, be faithful unto death. This is what the command has in mind here. It's a collection of people who have given their lives for Christ. They're martyrs. And what follows is important. We, we hear their prayer, and their prayer is a lament, and it's loud. They say in verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these martyrs are pleading with God to bring justice to those who have killed them. Note, they're not enacting their own justice, rather they're relying on God to do that. And at the same time, they're longing for justice, and they should. So you need to know there's nothing unchristian about wanting all the wrong in the world to be set right. Nothing wrong with you wanting the wrong that's been done to you to be set right. These, these martyrs are calling upon God to act because righteous judgment is a vital part of God's redemptive plan. But being a Christian means living with the tension of not seeking your own revenge, not seeking your own vengeance, 
And so how do you do this? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, you live with the end in mind. You, you live, Jesus is my king, the earth is not my home. These wrongs, God's gonna take care of. But what's fascinating here is that God answers them. The martyrs here aren't ignored. Instead, what, what happens? They're, they're given white robes, verse 11. These are probably symbols of their purity and their conquering status. Some kind of reward is probably in view here. And they're told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Wow. That verse 11 is probably the most important verse in this little section. Take note that there's a divinely appointed number of people who are going to give their lives for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's an appointed number. In other words, their martyrdom isn't accidental. It's a part of the divine plan. Now you need to understand what this means. This isn't like in heaven, a daily casualty report. We're an angels reporting to God, oh, we lost four more today. Our numbers are up, we lost 15 more. That's the wrong view. This isn't a casualty report. These are people crossing the finish line. <laughs> this is more like the finish line at the end of a 5K or triathlon or a bike race where you come down the hill and you can hear the music going and the tape is there and the announcer says, runner 115, Mark Rogop, looking slow, but he's gonna make it. And he crosses the finish line and you're like, woo! The idea here is that God has appointed particular people and the martyrs are waiting for these people to cross one after another, after another, after another. This is no casualty report. This is a statement of how worthy the King of Kings is so that these people are willing to give their lives. Living with the end in mind means that we understand suffering and hardship, even death, might very well be part of the calling of Christians because we're living for another kingdom. And what's more, it's part of God's plan. There is no accidental or pointless suffering. It's all part of God's purpose. As long, listen to me, as you're living for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You're not being persecuted with traffic. Your large electric bill, okay, it's hard, I get it. The problem is that for some of us, we don't even know what it's like to really suffer for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We know that life is hard, but for some of us, we define hard as something less than the American dream. And the reality is these are people who are suffering for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you see why living with the end in mind is embedded in this text? When you understand that, you're just like, why am I so upset about traffic? Get over myself. My life isn't that hard. I got a great life. 
Some of us need to ask ourselves, when's the last time it really cost me? It really cost me to follow Jesus. Like, really cost me. Live with the end in mind. Third, we find human frailty. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood. All of these are cosmic disturbances. The earth and sky convulse, the ground underneath begins to shake. The world begins to show signs of collapse. The stars fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So the idea here are the things that human beings put their trust and confidence in, like the sun and the sky and the moon at night and the stars and the mountains and the islands. The the whole fabric of our human existence is crumbling and people are rightly afraid. Verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, didn't matter if you had money or if you had authority, you had a title. They're no longer in control. They're just humans now. Their earthly might, their financial wealth have no ability to help them. And the text even goes even further. It includes everyone, slave and free. So notice this, human categories of social and political and economic advantage no longer matter. Anything that made them different is now gone. All they are are humans with the coming wrath of the lamb. Everyone's in the same position. They're hiding in caves and rocks from the judgment of King Jesus. They even call on these rocks to fall on them. But what are they hiding from? Revelation 6 concludes with a powerful statement. Don't miss it. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for great, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Wow. It's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no one is able to stand and that's the point of the entire chapter. The seals of judgment are here to show us, listen carefully, nobody stands when you're on the wrong side of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Nobody. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, the seals that are being revealed, all of this end stuff is designed to send a really clear message. You better be on the right side of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he comes. So let me address Non-Christians and Christians. First, non-Christians. If you're here today listening to this sermon, not yet a Christian, this text provides a very gracious warning to you about what's coming. So you can live with the end in mind. This chapter might help you understand what you probably already know, that the world is really broken. The Bible explains that. You see, sin has affected everything. It's gotten into everything that humans do. It even gets into us. 
And that's the problem. And there's coming a day when final judgment will be upon the world. You can hear little whispers of it now. Things are wrong, they're broken. But the Bible tells us that there's coming a day when everything wrong is going to be made right when Jesus returns. But when he returns, he's going to return as the regal judge. And listen to me, friend, you don't want to be on the wrong side of a holy God. And so there's an opportunity for you today, and I'm encouraging you, don't wait. You're here listening to Revelation chapter six. You understand the warning. Why not turn from your sins, put your trust in Christ, and come to Jesus today? Why not be welcomed into the family of God and know not only that your sins are forgiven, but that when it comes to standing before a holy God, your righteousness, the robe that you have has a name tag on it, it says Jesus. And he's given you a righteousness that you didn't deserve. For those of you who are Christians, I want you to know this text is primarily addressed to us. It's designed to help us understand what's gonna happen. And what this text tells us is that God's gonna judge the world. So listen, be bold in your evangelism. There's no plan B. You, in your neighborhood, in the workplace, with a friend, telling them that they need to come to Jesus, that's God's plan. God's gonna judge the world, so don't let bitterness or revenge be a part of your life and trust yourself to the courtroom of heaven. Live with the end in mind. Christian, we're going to suffer. And some of us would just do really well of stop spending emotional energy with how disappointed we are that our life is hard and thinking, why is it hard? Is this hard because it's annoying or is it hard because I'm a Christian? We need to reckon with the fact that people have to know you're a Christian in order to persecute you as a Christian. Finally, the world is gonna fall apart. So watch out. When you get nervous and fearful and you feel like your life is in, in jeopardy or gonna change or people are trying to convince you of that, watch out for false allegiances that begin to take spiritual priority over your affection for Jesus. Watch out when parts of your heart are starting to be given over to particular people who are promising you they can make your life better and Jesus is crowded out and all you can think about is how true and hopeful those promises are to you. Watch out. Be mindful that we shouldn't place our hopes in earthly leaders, rulers, systems, and nations. That we're Christians, and we're gathered together to be reminded who our king is, what kingdom we live for, and what it means for us to live in a broken world. So I want to remind you that the world is so broken because of the presence of sin that we need a deliverance that only Jesus can bring. So Revelation 6 starts to unfold for us what the end will look like. And why is this helpful? Because seeing this and understanding this reminds us, that's right, Jesus is my king. My citizenship is in heaven. The church is really where it's happening. The Bible is true. I can be humble and kind and patient. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to get vengeance. Instead, I can live in the world and be just like Jesus because there's coming a day when he's gonna come. And knowing that end 
is how I live right now. I can live with the end in mind. And I can say, all right, let's go. Because we're gonna make it. Because he's coming back. Oh Lord Jesus, we ask for your help to know how to apply this in our lives, in all kinds of spaces and venues, in our workplace, in our homes, in our schools. Thank you that our confidence can be firmly fixed in who you are, Jesus. So help us to be emboldened today to be real followers of yours. Help us to suffer well when we suffer for the name of Jesus. And God, grant us confidence, assurance, and hope in both who you are and what it means to be your children. Thank you that the end of the story is already written, and here we are waiting, saying, how long, how long, O Lord Jesus, until you come? Grant us strength so we can make it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.